0: Today are Way Too Interested, we're talking Japanese wrestling, specifically wrestler Kota Ibushi. Are you ready to... <laughs> oh my god, I can't do it. Just come join us, would you? So your hobby went from borderline to totally obsessive. Gabby's gonna find out how you got way too interested, way too
1: interested.
0: All right, everybody. Welcome to Way Too Interested. My name is Gavin Purcell. This is the new podcast where we talk to interesting people and ask them about a subject they're currently obsessed with outside of their everyday lives. Then the two of us talk to an expert in that subject matter and do a deep dive. It's a show about curiosity, discovery, creativity, and most importantly, pursuing those little things that get stuck in your brain and end up being way more fascinating than you ever expected. This is a fun one. My friend Spencer Hall is our guest on the show. Spencer Hall is a sports writer. He's been involved in sports for a very long time, worked for a very long time at SBNation.com. You will often see him on ESPN being a talking head. He's very good at that. And he and his partner just launched a new subscription website at a subscription uh, newsletter website called Channel 6, which uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about later. But first, before we get started, here are three interesting things about Spencer. All right, number one, Spencer is well known for his sports writing and all his other sports stuff, but you should also know he is one of, another one of these people. Like it seems like almost all these people have a wide range of interests in general. Um, I really kind of think he's a raconteur and definitely a dream guest for this podcast. You can always find all of the stuff he's following on his Twitter feed at ed. SBS S-B-S-E-D-S-B-S that's um, a long it's a long explanation what that comes from but just go find him at, at E-D-S-B-S it's funny he had a bunch of different ideas for what this podcast could have been about one of them I found fascinating and I want to be able to do one about somebody but if you haven't seen the BBC show Grand Designs it's on Netflix go watch it I'm not a giant home makeover show fan, but it is incredible for two reasons. Number one, that show finds a way to track people for four years of their lives while they're making their dream homes. And then number two, they often have miserable experiences. Anyway, it's, I don't even want to ruin it for you. Go watch it on Netflix, Grand Designs. Um, Spencer's the one who told me about it. He's really smart. He tells about it, a lot of things like that. Number two, Spencer, like a lot of other smart writers I know, has taken the leap into the newsletter world, and he started a new company called Channel 6 with his partner, Holly Anderson. Um, They do a lot of cool stuff over there, and you can find it by Googling Channel 6 Spencer Hall. Go there and support Awesome Writing. I'm a big fan of people um, starting Substacks or whatever they're doing to make money for themselves, because it's an awesome opportunity to kind of pursue their own interests. Number three... Spencer and I met each other, um, during my pretty short stint at Vox Media. Great company. love that place. Just had one more thing come up as an opportunity that I had to jump for, but shout out to all the people there. At the time we had convinced ourselves that there was this market for very weird sports that hadn't been on TV or in video places. It was one of those things where like he and I were both obsessed with like strange, small little things. Um, and I think, I think now, now that you've seen disc golf, cornhole, all these other sports show up either on ESPN Plus or on TikTok, I think it's just clear that we were way, way ahead of our time. Spencer has a deep, deep knowledge on sports. And one of the things that's so much fun about this particular podcast is I don't know a lot about wrestling other than what I grew up with. But one thing you'll find out is Japanese wrestling is very, very different than American wrestling. And this particular wrestler that Spencer chose to do the podcast about, Kota Ibushi, is his own crazy story. Um, in the break, I'm going to give you a few more details about him because like, we don't talk enough about him before we start talking about him. But anyway, let's get to it. Here's Spencer. Uh, hey, Spencer, welcome to uh, Way Too Interested.
1: Thank you, Gavin. It's an honor.
0: I was thinking about this the other day, uh, or, or, you know, in a little bit today, we go back a little ways, not like crazy far, um, but unlike a lot of the guests that I've had on here so far, I, I have at least met you in person. You are not just a Twitter friend of mine. So we were together briefly at Vox Media, and I've been a big fan of your work since then and before I guess Well, how do you describe yourself now? I know I think of you often as like a kind of a of a, a raconteur the best possible way, but like you've written mostly about sports and kind of had a specialty in in college football, right?
1: Yeah, I think I've fallen into professional guest for 2021. <laughs> that's right. kind of my gig. And to be honest, that's really fun. It could be more lucrative, but we'll work on that. I really I think my background is primarily in college football, but in writing about college football My angle was always to write about whatever I thought it stuck to. And it turns out that it's impossible to pull a sport um, too much further away from its culture or what's around it. You know, you can't really, you can't really atomize it. You know, it's, it is what it is. And it's tied to like eight or nine different things in my brain. And I think, by the way, in reality, right, it's it's tied to all of those things. So I think that's my, that's my background is as a, a blogger who had no idea what I'm, was doing to a podcaster who has no idea what I'm doing to a guest who has no idea what I'm doing. But if you're really nice about it, people seem to invite you back.
0: One of the things I want to talk about is how I love talking to you about sports in not just like, you know, you are not necessarily a stats person in that way. You are somebody that like sees layers and things. And I loved, I remember you and I, and I've mentioned this to you a couple of times, but we had a lovely conversation about the sport of darts and about the different sorts of personalities that exist in the sport of darts and like what separates it from just being throwing darts at a dartboard. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that and kind of like how that find sway into your writing, into your podcasting?
1: Yeah, that I've always thought the most interesting thing you could do would try to be to describe the thing as it is, because I don't think that's what most people do, especially sports writers. That's not to slag on sports writers. They have a specific job and the specific job of a sports writer in the day was to convey information and to say, this person did this, this person did that. Here's how it happened. And, uh, you know, file and that's it. And that was a perfectly respectable thing to do. I can't exactly do that because one, um, I'm terrible at basic numbers and facts. I'm just going <laughs> to screw something up, but I can describe the thing as it is and and what makes that thing so unique or different. Because that to me, like as a viewer, that is what, you know, or even as a participant, that is what makes games so fun. That is what makes, you know, because essentially like I thought, well, if I had to describe what I did and bust it down to like, what do you describe? And I'm like, I think people have an innate Desire to play and watch games. They do. Uh, And at any level, you know, I think people would bet on the first raindrop down the window pane. That is, you know, and people do. If they're bored, that is inevitably what they do. My favorite story in this vein is the SS Yorktown at the Battle of Midway was crippled. And it was hit in such a manner that there were watertight compartments flooded in between compartments that still had air and trapped sailors down there and the rest of the ship. There was no way of rescuing them, but they still had tubes so they could talk up. So these dudes were fried. They were dead and they could still, but they could still talk via the, the ship's intercom system up. And what they were doing was playing cards and waiting for the ship to be scuttled. And they said like, Hey, listen, we're playing cards. That's what we're doing. And and I'm like, that to me is that's a basic moment. Humanity that when you had a moment to kill, In between, you know, the now and the never now, they were like, well, I don't know. We got some cards down here. We might as well play, you know, it's better than worrying. And I thought like that's that's kind of beautiful to me that in that moment they were like, well, we can engage with another person. Well, we got some time.
0: That's one of the greatest things about games, right? You can actually, like, you can forget so many things around you and just focus on this weird random... In the tool set can be completely random. It doesn't have to be really detailed or specific. I remember there was a time in an office I was trying to... I don't know what I was doing exactly, but I saw a pipe on my ceiling and there's one of those little hoops on it and basically came up with a game called Hoop and Pipe where everybody would come in and try to get the hoop as close to the edge of the wall without hitting it. And, like those are the best moments because you just like, I, I remember that more than I remember that show I worked on, <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah, like I, I I always thought that was the real genius behind the best moments on the original Late Night with David Letterman or even the the Late Show. Once they rebooted it, they would just open up a camera and play a very stupid game. It's Late Letterman, but Will It Float is like a great segment because Will It Float is everything it says it would be. They just have a big tank of water And they throw things into it and they have to guess, will it float or won't it? I love the basic antidote to boredom that comes out of that, which is a game. And I think with darts, there's nothing more elemental to me in games and boredom than darts, because darts should be a pretty dry affair. And yet, you know, like, I think that's what made that scene from Ted Lasso, the dart scene from Ted Lasso work, that you could get great drama If you just put a little bit of weight on it, if you just say, why don't we let a little something ride on this? Or why don't we start counting? You know, like, that's it. You don't even have to put money on it. You can just say, well, what if we counted this? Or what if we did this? What if we made some random rules? Suddenly you've got drama. Suddenly there's a part of your brain that's just happy doing that. I think, you know, people need that. And I I think people are going to see this too, that during the pandemic sports, there was this kind of tension between our innate need to sort of play games and relate that way. Because it's typically a very safe thing. We have rules on how to interact. We're not going to argue, right? Because we can go to the rules. But we need to interact with people. But we need kind of a medium. And I think games during the pandemic were in a crisis period because so many of the little basic mechanisms that make games work malfunctioned. We didn't have an audience that, that, that watched it, right? We couldn't necessarily play a lot of the games that we used to play to stay sane because, well, we can't really get close to each other. You know, like the only thing that sort of thrived was video games. That's why, by the way, like I've never gaming. I've always gotten like when somebody was like, well, why would you watch a game? I'm like, well, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you watch somebody play Fortnite? Totally watch somebody play Fortnite.
0: Yeah. And I was going to say, like, that's the thing I think people sometimes it's just about what you have the reference for. Right, People who say, I can't watch Fortnite, it's like, well, you just don't play it and you don't know the rules enough. right? It's the same thing as if you don't, wouldn't know soccer and you tried to watch it. You may not enjoy it because you don't know the rules or the drama going on.
1: Yeah, I, and that's a matter of taste. However, I, I suspect somebody who would say, well, I don't enjoy watching a streaming game. I don't enjoy watching somebody just sit and play all day. I get that. But I bet a lot of those people watch something where I would go, I have a very unfair comparison that you enjoy. Uh, right like if i said there's a lot of people who probably don't really enjoy watching streaming video games but they'll watch golf and as somebody who from time to time really enjoys watching golf in certain contexts i can see the irony there because what am i watching in a golf tournament but something that's like streaming but slower and without the direct commentary to me that's just an issue of speed you're just you're just at a different speed. Like there's no difference. Like if I stream, like there's a very we're approaching a very weird moment where if I stream me playing Mario golf, honestly, it's not that different than watching a golf tournament. It's just not. The only thing that you get to buy into is that these people are in your mind real. That you know them and their personalities and you can see them, right? Is this me getting to Bryson Duchambeau not being that much different than Bowser with a club in his hand? Yeah. That's where I'm headed. For this, right?
0: And by the way, I might ultimately, I'm not that far away from being more impressed by the Mario Golf Professional than I would be with the actual Golf Professional.
1: <laughs> I mean, look at it this way. The Mario Golf Professional probably didn't have an entire class-supported apparatus getting them to that point, right? Price and dish and mode doesn't come from poverty, right? You know, he had a lot of help on the way up and he's surrounded and lives in a place that just, you know, lives and breathes golf. He's from, uh, I believe, Texas. You know, Texas is golf mad. Everyone from Texas plays golf. People you would not expect to play golf, play golf. Willie Nelson plays golf. Is that right? Is he good? Willie Nelson at one point said, I play country music to support my golf habit.
0: Oh my God, really? Yeah. (laughs) What was he? Well, he must've been high, I'm assuming, but he's high all the time, so.
1: I mean, does that mean anything? That really doesn't. I think, you, I think being high while playing golf would really, really help. There's a great Willie story in there. He loved golf so much he bought a course out of Pedernales outside of Austin. It's part. It's a course, and it's also kind of where he has this little Western town that he used in a in a movie he shot. Anyway, Willie was playing with Chichi Rodriguez, and they get up to the green, and the ball's like in a kind of odd spot. It's a difficult lie and it's going to be like a you know 25 footer of extreme difficulty. And Chi Chi Rodriguez walks over and picks up Willie's ball. He said, Oh, you're going to give that to me. And Chi Chi says, no, but you weren't going to make it.
0: Oh <laughs> my God. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, well, that, ostensibly this podcast is kind of about discovery and, and finding things. And, how do you so one of the things I'm always curious with people is and you I think you're really good at this is not only finding new things but then kind of clicking in your brain about when you want to go deeper on something how do you decide something's worth not just like barely skimming over and then wanting to kind of dive into a little further
1: that it's an itch thing mostly it's i have a very inefficient brain in a lot of ways because i will dig a little too far into something that I really shouldn't be interested in. That's like not a productive thing and we will sometimes try to, you know, validate that by trying to turn it into work with varying results. In the case of, you know, Twitter, it's very interesting. Twitter for me is the perfect platform because I usually can tell if I'm interested in something in about, you know, two seconds. It's it's either my thing or it's not. I don't really require a whole lot of elaboration and that's one way another way is just talking to people talk once you once people figure out that you either have a wide palette or you're the kind of person who's into a certain kind of thing they'll come to you and they'll email you or dm you or talk to you in person and say hey have you seen this you know and and like this is a thing my brother and i did growing up uh, and i think it comes from it comes from watching a lot of anything on cable like I think a childhood watching a lot of anything on cable did me a lot of good in the sense that it gave me a very broad set of interests because I would watch anything that was on. And eventually, by being that kind of promiscuous with your time, you're going to land on some things that really pay off. You know, Like OG ESPN2 is, is still the inspiration for me. Like nothing for me is better than the random assortment of things that was on it, like an off an off football off season Saturday in like April
0: did did you so one of the things I I love this and I love that and I sometimes feel like kind of an old guy when I kind of talk about those times because one of the things that they did was they forced you to watch certain things Um, whereas now like my daughter's downstairs she's watching Netflix and she's watching Manifest which is a show that was canceled off network cable so like that or network television so that's a good thing that she's discovering that stuff but like by going out and finding it She's just got this plethora of things to choose from. But I I had an example of this coming up recently. Did you see that shot the guy made the um, disc golf? golf, Yeah, the disc frisbee golf shot. And like, so that's a really cool example of that is like, even on ESPN2, they they wouldn't necessarily have been broadcasting that back in the day. And now you can see that thing happen. And because on the clip itself is so phenomenal, it shows up on Twitter and then everybody gets a chance to experience it.
1: I think that's where the discovery element has broken down in the algorithm because if everything's decided algorithmically you're not going to be surprised there's not a whole lot of surprise there at least not the kind that isn't tied to the algorithm itself and coming across the random is is really super important to me i like to put that into anything i make and i also really like nothing is more pleasing to me than finding like i think as a kid i loved the novel lonesome dove by larry mcmurtry because in the middle of it they're going through the desert and there's just these two drunk irishmen singing in the middle of the empty panhandle of texas just two drunk irishmen and i was like thank you larry mcmurtry this is, the <laughs> guy, this is the kind of thing i really appreciate in a story any story you know i loved espn too for that because there's a long slog and i think nostalgia can kind of deaden a lot of maybe the irritation of not having a choice. But at the same time, I don't know if I would have watched the world's strongest man, if not for something like ESPN two or the lumberjack games, which eventually I got to go to in person.
0: Oh my God. That must've been amazing.
1: Yeah. It was in Hayward, Wisconsin. It's a great place. You should go to Hayward. They have like enormous ceramic fish for what are they? Is that just what they're known for? It has a, it's like a fishing museum. There, like a freshwater fishing museum. And they have a, they have like a gigantic fiberglass pike. It's like 50 feet long that you can, you know step up into the mouth of.
0: By the way, that's another thing that you do. My daughter and I just drove across the country. And that's another thing that people are doing a lot less of. But you discover a lot of stuff just by visiting places. Right. And like, obviously, the pandemic barring the pandemic, but people don't leave the cities as much that they that feels like people it's always I, I don't maybe I'm tangentially they do. But like, I do feel like people need to travel more and get out. Like the biggest thing and decision I ever made in my life was going to Korea after college. I spent a year teaching English there and that changed my life in a lot of ways but i think that just more people need to get out and do that too physically
1: yeah i think it's an important thing to note because we we both had this experience i went overseas immediately after undergrad and went and taught in taiwan which i think the taiwan to korea experience is probably best related as this i had more traffic accidents and you probably had more binge drinking that seemed to be the thing. Everyone from Korea came in and they were like, I'm never touching alcohol again.
0: It, it, I couldn't believe the guy who owned, first of all, the guy who owned our school was called a hagwon, which was like an after school school. He's chain smoked. And then every night would like us to go out and just get plastered with him. It was just part of what he wanted. It, it was super fun, but you're right. It you, you learn your lesson pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. But like the, an important thing to note is that that experience will be very eye opening and it will change your life but not as much as you think it might. Like, that's the, like, you get, my my great experience was coming home from that and going, oh, everything that irritated me about that now irritates me about America. Like, every, like everything that I was like, ah, this is culture shock. This sucks. And then you get home and you're like, oh, no, I just learned about reality. I didn't actually learn <laughs> about, like, a specific place. And you're like, ah, man, this, man, is this is
0: just, this just growing this up. Is just how, this is just how things are. Oh, no. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into this. Um, all right. So, you're here to talk about a very specific thing. And I'm excited about this one. Um, so, Spencer, tell us what you're way too interested in.
1: I'm Spencer Hall, and I'm way too interested in Kota Bushi, the greatest wrestler alive.
0: All right. So, this is... Uh, I, I'm, I've said I'm excited about a lot of these, but this one is very specific. And what I love is the specificity of it and it's our first individual the first human being that's been chosen for this show which i think is great so let's first start with for the audience who has no idea who this person is who is this guy
1: kota Ibushi is a japanese wrestler currently working for njpw which is the new japan pro wrestling circuit out of tokyo japan and he is one of their top wrestlers was recently a double title holder and to put it gently is insane he is he is somehow one of the most dynamic creative and uh influential wrestlers of his time and yet will despite having two belts has a background which is unabashedly silly he has some of the silliest least serious wrestling bits and roles and experiences a guy who has been on the side of um it's comparable to imagine if the undertaker had done an entire series or a channel imagine if michael jordan had just done space jam for like 10 years imagine if michael (laughs) like like had just been if he had just done that imagine if the greatest athlete of your time had also at their peak done this entire weird side lark where they fought in rivers and got thrown off docks and shot fireworks on themselves in the middle of streets in london just a guy who was is as physically talented as anyone to ever do this who was part of what some might call the best tag team of all time in the golden lovers and A guy who, while doing all of this, has been ahead of his time and being a lot of the things that you really couldn't have been at the time, like gender fluid, possibly bisexual, uh, like a guy who transcended any kind of cultural barriers because that's how cool he is. This is a guy who has a following in the United States, along with a lot of people in a GPW without speaking English has not tried to do this has not tried to come over to the wwe or to AEW yet
0: well i was actually going to say that's one of the things when i did some research on because i had never when you had mentioned him i had not heard of him now i'm not a wrestling uh, super fan or even a, a, i was a fan growing up and i'm aware of like things that are happening in the especially in the wwe and some of the other uh, leagues right now but even when you google him it's sometimes hard to get deeper information about him because it's almost like there's this pocket of Japanese wrestling that you kind of have to have your way into to understand it, right? Or you have to have this kind of understanding. In your mind, and I think I'm to talk to Chris, our expert, a little bit about this too, but like what sets Japanese wrestling apart from what we kind of know as professional wrestling in America? Less than it used to because starting in the 1990s, thanks to
1: a real culture of tape swapping, Which I love.
0: Remember, I say what that even what what is tape swapping?
1: (laughs) Tape swapping is where literally, like, tapes would go back and forth between wrestling fans, like VHS tapes. And it's not like wrestlers weren't making this uh, trip already. Wrestlers were going back and forth from Japan for years, so much so that like Ribera Steakhouse is this famous. Like, if you get a Ribera, you know what a Ribera jacket is?
0: I don't. What is it? There's
1: a steakhouse in Tokyo, Ribera Steakhouse. Its logo is a bowl. And if you, it's become a haunt for wrestlers across the world, not just Japanese wrestlers, but every first gen WWE star, every first gen WCW star who doubled in Japan for a paycheck went to Ribera. So they'd go to Ribera and, you know, get trashed and eat like huge steaks and, you know, do wrestler stuff. And, if the owner liked you and you came back enough you got a ribera jacket it is gavin a silk jacket with the bull on the back and you can only oh, get a nice it to the owner if the owner gives it to you
0: it's like the green jacket of wrestling then it's like is that the, what it's is that like a real like collect like is there only like 30 of them in the world or like is it one of those kind of things i mean i found i,
1: I found one allegedly authentic one on ebay once but it was one far too expensive, and two, I really didn't trust it. I didn't verify it. You know? <laughs> also, uh, three, a part of me wants to earn my own. I don't really know how that's going to happen at this point in life. But I just thought wearing a Ribera jacket that I didn't get would be tawdry. I thought it would. It feels be like cheap. that's
0: like buying an Oscar. Like it also feels like who had to sell it to get rid of it. <laughs> you know, it's one of those kind of things.
1: Yeah, what kind of human misfortune am I cashing in on? by going to what I think is effectively an estate sale off someone's misfortune because why would you give up a Ribera jacket? It's something special.
0: Okay, so this guy sounds incredible. I think I, I, just for our listeners, please Google him. And oh, the other thing that's interesting about this is it's actually really hard to watch highlights because Japanese media, and I've had this experience dealing sometimes with Japanese media companies before as well, is they're very controlling of their... Clips, right? So even though he's this giant star, it's not that easy to find stuff about him or of him.
1: Yeah, and that's that's true. And this is where Twitter came in for me because I, the first time I saw Coda was on a video that has somehow survived since about 2020 that gets posted by a, an account called uh, Sir Lariato, aka Lariato. Larry posts a bunch of He's a compulsive wrestling watcher, which is great because it's a combination of like three places that you wouldn't normally think would really be super tight. And that would be the Southern United States, Mexico, and Japan. These are the places that really thrive off of wrestling and where wrestling sort of calls itself home. And Sir Laredo posts this video, which is a compilation that I believe he made. It's set to Pink Floyd's Shine On You Crazy Diamond.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, I sent it to
1: you in chat if you just want to like. I'm watching it. Yeah, I'm watching it right now. If you can just get some live chat of like, I can't believe this man did it. But hopefully you can understand that after you've watched someone do all of the things that... Koda Bushi does in this video which is moon salt off everything. Ride bikes off ramps into retention ponds for no reason. Yeah, I'm
0: watching him shoot uh Roman candles into other wrestlers right now and now he's he's kayak. they're they're actually he's actually wrestling in a kayak with the other guy. It's just fantastic. That's incredible.
1: Yeah, he's DDTing somebody into a pit at a construction site. He's fighting with the Dominatrix. Range range is the thing that i realized this man had obviously the thing that you see when you watch him for the first time is i can't believe this man is doing this and this is one of the best wrestlers alive and this is what he was doing for fun on an entirely different circuit this isn't njpw this is mostly ddt pro which is meant to be a satire of wrestling that is that can't really exist without big serious wrestling right
0: well, let's. We're gonna to get to our expert here. Um, Was gonna join us in a second. What is? What are the kind of things you want to know from him?
1: Man, you know, the only thing I want to know about Coda is how, man. Just how? How did any of this happen? How does someone who has been in the game this long and taken this much abuse and been this big and serious in the game also done so many absolutely ridiculous things, even by a wrestler's standards? You know. Where does this man go from here, having been something which I think is so singular? What, are, what do other wrestlers think of him? What are what are the things we are not seeing? Because basically what I see with Kota Ibushi is that like I get hints of what I think other people think he is. And I see the belts and I understand that he is definitely something. I need parameters on that something. I need to know how on earth any of this happened, where it's going and what this dude is actually like because from my understanding he doesn't actually have to do this he comes from like his story his his myth that he comes from money He doesn't really have to be doing any of this this is just his preferred thing
0: all right that is awesome i can't wait to hear the answer to those questions either um we'll be right back and we'll be joined by chris our expert um come right back way too interested All right, before we come back with uh, our guest today, whose name is Chris Charlton, he is an expert on Japanese wrestling, lives in Japan. Uh, You're gonna like him. He's got a lot of great information about Kota Ibushi. I wanna tell you about a book that I read and I think you might all like. I'm doing this in between the interviews for this show because I don't have ads. I don't know if I'm going to take ads, but for right now, I don't have ads. And I thought this would be a cool way to break it up. I'll make this a quickie just because it's a sports-related book in some ways, but I think it's more of a book that everybody should still read, too. Um, this is a book called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World by a guy named David Epstein. I read this book a couple years ago, and it kind of blew my mind only because <laughs> I think that I've believed in this idea forever, and I was hoping something like this would come out. So it was one of those things where like, It's just clearly proved myself right. So that means it must be right. But I think you'd really enjoy reading it. It's definitely a story about how it opens with a nice anecdote about the childhoods of Tiger Woods versus the childhood of Roger Federer and how Tiger Woods was built from an early age to be a golfer. And Roger Federer kind of like found his way into tennis a little bit later in his um, life and just how that changes our approach to different things. I, as I've said on this podcast before, I'm a giant believer in generalism. I believe that everybody out there should be trying to explore and expose themselves to multiple different types of information, subjects, try to explore the things that are interesting to them because you never know where it comes from. This book, Range, does a really good job of driving that home and why that's worthwhile. So anyway, check it out. David Epstein's Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Um, And now let's get back to the second half of the interview. I do want to start off with one thing just because I think we jump into this a little quickly. And just so we give you a little background on who Kota Ibushi is. So Kota Ibushi is a wrestler in Japan. He's a professional Japanese wrestler. And I think right now yes so he's the inaugural IWGP World Heavyweight Champion. Um, so anyway, he's a champion wrestler right now. He's kind of come back and forth, but the thing the thing that we get into here about what makes him interesting is that he is almost like a superhero in terms of the crazy things that he has done as a wrestler. And wrestling in Japan is is pretty different from what it is here in America, but you'll get a little bit more of that from Chris as we get into this conversation. It's a deep, it's a deep deep rabbit hole, and you can go very deep. Uh, but I found it for super fascinating. I hope you enjoy. All right, welcome back, everybody. Um, so we are now joined by our Japanese wrestling expert, Chris Charlton. Thank you for coming on, Chris. We appreciate it. No, oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So, Chris, before we get started, maybe can you tell us a little bit about your background in the space and kind of like how long you've been you've been covering it?
2: Uh, yeah. Okay. So right now. Officially full time, I've been in the the quote unquote wrestling business for the the last couple of years, I guess. You know, I announced for New Japan Pro Wrestling on NJPWWorld.com, which is our our streaming service. Um, So I'm one of the English commentary teams. And I also work in uh, global and digital media, which is a very broad term, but but that's, uh, you know, that's the title on my business card, I guess, uh, for New Japan Pro Wrestling. But, um, you know, before that, I did freelance translation work, and when it connects, and I know we're going to get into Kodobushi, but you know, I helped a few years ago make a, a documentary with him for Vice, and I wrote a couple of books and did podcasts. So yeah, you know, I've been connected with Japanese wrestling for really the last sort of decade on a kind of money here and there basis, but like full time for the last couple of years. Yeah,
0: great. And then really fast for our audience, the majority of whom probably understands that there's a wrestling business in Japan and understands and has seen it. What would you describe as like, you know, kind of the overall differences between what Americans might know about wrestling, professional wrestling, and what you might see in Japan? And I'll, then we'll get into Kota Ibushi, which I think is a whole nother thing. But I just kind of want to get a general sense before we get going.
2: Yeah, I, I think it, it connects quite well with with Kota because he, he bridges a few of those gaps. But I always sort of liken pro wrestling what draws me to it and what draws you know, a lot of fans to it and how i explain it to people that, that don't watch is that we're mixed martial arts but we put the emphasis on the art and uh so there's a breadth of character and a sort of symbiotic connection with the audience that you wouldn't necessarily get in other sports but the fact that it is a sport it's a very broad uh sort of means of of communication and expression so it's um I can't speak for every company here, but for New Japan Pro Wrestling, we've had King of Sports on our branding for the last, you know, since the 1970s. So that's always been there. And, you know, I think there's a purity of that, that you don't get, in American pro wrestling, uh, certainly over the last 30 years or so, I think there's been much more of an obsession with the meta of pro wrestling. And it's kind of become more about making a television show with pro wrestling as its core conceit, as opposed to televising pro wrestling, which is what we do. So I think there's, there's a purity of this is professional wrestling. We are professional wrestling. And it is the the, the king of sports and that sports presentation that that's important.
0: I mean, I think that's one thing I noticed from watching specifically clips of Kota Ibushi is the athleticism involved in what's going on there versus not that. Obviously, American wrestlers are doing incredibly athletic things as well. Um, Okay, Spencer, I know you're chomping at the bit. You've got some stuff you want to jump into about Kota Ibushi. So, like, let's let's hear it. Yeah, Chris, I
1: just want to know, like, how did this happen? Is he really like this seems like something entirely like even with my limited experience with NJPW, which is pretty much limited to learning about it as a background to let's know what I'm talking about when I talk about wrestling in general. But with Kota, his background and his range of experience seems so all over the place to me, particularly because I came to him through DDT Pro, which I understand is kind of like saying that you came to drug use through Quaaludes. Like, it's so different and it's so off the map compared to the kind of Puro Resu stuff that they do in NGPW. How did this man happen? Like, are all these things like of a piece? Is he like, I don't know. Is there a question in there? He just like as a performer and as an athlete, he seems singular and endlessly interesting to me.
2: He's a bit of a, a a living anime character, isn't he? That's kind of the appeal of pro wrestling to a lot of fans. It's just like in the the West, this this idea of these are uh, real life superheroes. I think in Japan as well, that there's this idea of, of it's, a, it's a real life anime, or the, you know, there, there's some there's certain aspects of that, and that's what drew him in. To Pro Wrestling originally. You know, he, he tells this story that you know, he and his brother were, were going out renting videotapes one weekend with, with their parents and and he wants the, the Dragon Ball anime. And his his big brother came back with a Pro Wrestling tape. <laughs> and he and he got mad by that. But that's what sucked him in of, of like, well, holy crap, this is just like Dragon Ball, but this this is this is real life. You know, this is amazing. So I think that there was always that aspect to it for, for him and, and that's that's what sucked it that's what sucked him in. So I think yeah there, there's a lot of bizarre sort of interludes and incidents with, with Koda Ibushi, but but that's kind of the genesis of, of that is this this desire to be a real life superhero and a real life anime character, I think.
0: If you were going to describe him, Chris, to somebody who wasn't aware of him, what what would be how would you describe him? Like what, what is the basic Kota Ibushi description?
2: Yeah, you know, I think again. If if pro wrestling is is mixed martial arts with the arts italicized, then Kodobushi is a martial artist with the emphasis on the artist. Yo, know, he got his training initially. Yo, know, he was driven to be a pro wrestler. Came from Kagoshima, which is a very sort of rural area of Japan, very uh, separate, remote, and uh, decided he wanted he wanted to do this. Uh, graduates from high school, goes all the way to Tokyo on his own and he sort of realized on his first day when he went to a training school that this wasn't really for him like he didn't really enjoy being training with other people he wanted to march to the beat of his own drum so he kind of split apart from that trained in kickboxing just to see you know if he could do it and uh, he had uh, you know he had a fight and then went went back into to progressing but has been mostly self-taught ever since you know, so that there's this very much. He's a very independent spirit in that regard. He still now has his has his own dojo where he trains mostly on his own, and helps uh, sort of train other people here. But um, he has a very own. So he has his very sort of. He's an alter in a sense. And then when he he gets in in the wrestling ring, he's um, an incredibly talented martial artist you know and so it it's yeah he's he's very much the, a a martial a martial artist if you will you know
1: when you watch him fight there's two things that the anime character thing is very real it, that goes all the way down to his branding if you go to his t-shirts you know like everyone else's t-shirts are very much look like wrestling shirts and kota Ibushi's look like a, a, an anime shirt like it is very bright it is blue you know there's stars on it it looks like Something that you would have watched in the United States on a uh, on a VHS tape, right, in like 1997.
2: Oh, for, yeah. I, I mean, like down to sort of every single mannerism of of his, where he sort of goes through these these stages, and and if if you see a, a long form Kodo Ibushi match you start watching with that with that pattern so if this is it's it's like reading a superhero comic or it, it's it's watching an anime there, there's a part where literally fans talk about him turning into quote unquote murder ebu becomes like the the, uh, <laughs> the comments that you get on twitter because there is this this phase where he'll be he'll be beaten down and beaten down and beaten down and then you know he kind of decides that enough is enough and he gets that look in his eye where it's like, oh, you know, business is gonna pick up here. You know, he's turning sort of super science, so to speak. You know, so I think that's that's one and then all through last year in his backstage comments, he, w- he was talking about wanting to win the G1 Climax, which is our, our biggest tournament that takes place over, over usually over the summer. Recently, it's been taking place over the autumn. And then uh, going on to win the championships at the Tokyo Dome and through that to become God. <laughs> and, and, you know, people would say, well, because Kodyobushi has as often he's talked about some of the, the people that he respected, looked up to, you know, he's sort of said, these, these people are gods to me. And so you know th- he'd get these questions. Are you talking about gods in the same sense that you think Hiroshi Tanahashi and Nakamura these uh, your know, fantastic legendary figures in in Japanese pro wrestling? You, you're talking about becoming like them, right? And he's like, no, no, I want to be like Capital G God. You know
0: that's, that's <laughs> my plan. here.
2: So I'm not sure that answers your question, but but uh, you know it's it's a little bit of, of an insight, and I think that's that's what makes him so popular really all the way around the world, you know, it's, it's this idea of, you know, recognizing a character instantly by the, the silhouette, be it like Mickey Mouse or Bart Simpson, you know, I think, I think you're, you're seeing with, with Ibushi, you see broad strokes to him initially of, of like, here's this, this wild guy and, and Spencer, like you've been saying that, that he did these, these crazy things sort of outside the ropes of the wrestling ring. And he talks about becoming God and and all of these sort of crazy ideals. And you see those broad strokes and then you can sort of do a deep dive and find something new to to each of his matches that that, uh, get you sort of even further invested in that character.
1: When it comes to him, like if we were to describe a typical Ibushi match, um, and I don't know if there's too many actual typical ones based on what I've watched, but there are a few common threads the amount of punishment that he takes and the risks that he's willing to take the brutality reminded me a little bit of Shinsuke Nakamura. It was, you know, another guy who was just a fantastically brutal wrestler with big operatic gestures. But like, I understand that Ibushi admires him. It seems like Koto Ibushi takes that even a step further. I like, like more manic, willing to take bigger chances, but also to do these side things like, like, for instance, this time in DDD Pro, which I'm kind of obsessed with, where it seems like he was willing to do anything, up to and including shooting himself with fireworks and bystanders, and getting beat up in like beach bathrooms and being thrown into pits of boiling water, uh, fighting in kayaks and rivers. Like, where does that? Where does that fit into all this? That can't just like. I guess my point is that can't just be a gig. It just seems like he is attracted to like the big operatic gesture, even on the scale of wrestlers who are attracted to big operatic gestures. Like it feels very Freddie Mercury to me that like that too much is not enough in terms of what he does in the ring and outside of it.
2: Yeah. I I think there's, there's sort of two questions to that. You know, I, I think like, um, When it comes to how you know the the strokes of his matches that you see it it's a very sort of common thread with ibushi with um shinsuke like you mentioned hiroshi tanahashi is definitely you know he's he's in that vein as well and you you sort of trace that back to antonio Anoki. and you know i'm sure that the people listening to this aren't really familiar with those japanese names but it's it's not too divorced from the way Hulk Hogan would wrestle where athletically and, and the moves that are being done, uh, in the ring are, are very, very different, but there's still this idea of in Japanese, you would do would say like, yarate, 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 it's like, so you take, and you take, and you take, and so you can take no more. And then you turn that energy back around and that sort of takes, you know, it, it's the sort of, from the fan standpoint, it's this hero's journey. That gets people involved in in the back half of that match and sends all of that support. And you've got, you've got that support building the momentum and the adrenaline of the athlete that, that that's able to do these fantastic things and these superhero things, you know. So I think there's that sort of common thread through. But I always think, like, for Ibushi doing these these other side gigs, so to speak, well, not really side gigs, but but to he's always been interested in broadening what professional wrestling is and this this framework of what we have with, with pro wrestling, that even though in a different sense to kind of, I think, how the West has approached that, where, you know, I said before that it kind of feels like when you watch an American TV production about wrestling, it's it's a TV show about pro wrestling rather than pro wrestling itself. Whereas Ibush is saying, like, it's still pro wrestling, it's pro wrestling to him, but Pro wrestling doesn't necessarily have to be in a ring. Pro wrestling can be in the street. Pro re- and you know he what his desire is to break down those those boundaries of what professional wrestling is. and let's get rid of that barrier to entry where you know i think first of all there's a barrier to entry simply in terms of getting people to watch this amazing thing watch watch professional wrestling you know it's it's coming up next week by a ticket but just buying a ticket is a barrier to entry right just uh, putting in some money to watch it on a, a streaming subscription service is is a barrier to entry so his viewpoint and and had been well if i wrestle someone just in the street in a shopping center completely out of the blue and somebody walks by they're going to be instantly drawn into that and they're going to be a fan instantly because you know i think that that's the thing about pro wrestling is it's a very there's layers to it it's a very broad sort of means of expression but it's a very easy thing to understand it's conflict you know it's combat it's and it's sports you know and, and it's that that whole thing of the ecstasy of victory and the agony of defeat you know i mean like it's so easy to be drawn in so all we have to do is show it to people and uh, you know even today and even when he was world well, champion up to a couple of months ago he said well if i had you know if i was able to do everything i wanted i would take this and defend this title and have title matches in old people's homes <laughs> or you know <laughs> Or anyway, just because, you know, there are people alive that haven't seen this wonderful thing called professional wrestling. All we have to do is show it and people will, will be uh, invested instantly. So, you know, there's he's really, really dedicated to his art, you know, I, I think. But it's like the, um, you know, there, there was, uh, I'm going to attribute it to, to the wrong comedian. I think there was someone, I think it was Stephen Munry that, that said that, you know, there, there are a lot of people willing to suffer for their art but not many people willing to learn how to draw and i think kodobushi can do
0: both what uh what is his level of like say celebrity in japan is he is he on the level of like you know the rock at his peak here wrestling wise or is he larger than that or is is wrestling that big in japan
2: i think the very very peak of of pro wrestling would have been in the early 80s where we talk about it, the, you know, the the golden time where Pro wrestling was on Friday nights at at prime time and had the the lion's share uh, of the the television audience. Um, And we kind of, it went through sort of peaks and and valleys in the 90s, very, very big. And then in the early 2000s, there was a a sudden flock away from uh, professional wrestling in general. And at that point, uh, things like pride and mixed martial arts gathered a lot of momentum in Japan. And uh, you know th- there was a lot of sort of fans heading that way, and then not necessarily coming back. And it really sort of started in the early part of the last decade, of tapping into uh, you know, what professional wrestling can be, and especially for for New Japan Pro Wrestling under the parent company, which is uh, Bushiroad, uh, who make a lot of uh, character based anime goods, trading card games, and they-, they sort of tapped into this idea of that it's a character driven and a star driven. Um, sporting genre and they were able to sort of market that towards a much more of a younger crowd whereas before it it was uh, significantly sort of middle-aged men they brought that down and broadened it you know kept some of those fans because uh, you know it's all about respecting the history and the legacy but at the same time bringing in uh, younger fans bringing in women and uh, that's really sort of shifted our demographic to where, you know, I don't have the exact numbers, so I don't want to completely misspeak, misspeak but I believe, you know, in general, our, our audience is, is 60, 40 male, female, which is a radically different sort of demographic than, than what was with with professional wrestling. So while it isn't where it necessarily was sort of 30, 40 years ago, it's growing again. And I think the, the pandemic has affected that. But, you know, the, the once we're sort of gradually getting getting rolling again, you know, I think I think that it'll pick right back up.
0: And he's like in the world of, like, say, general knowledge in, say, in Japan, most do a lot of people know who he is or is it still something where, like, you kind of have to be in the know?
2: Uh, I think most of his uh, big, big fans are in the know, but he's also, uh, you know, he'll he'll pop up every now and then in the most unexpected places,
1: you know, <laughs> and, and you'll see him on the, on these uh, talk shows. And- what is one of those? Yeah. Like, like, let me know if I'm sitting watching, if I'm watching TV in my underwear in Tokyo at like 10 AM, right. With jet lag in a hotel room, where am I going to see Koto Abushi that I wouldn't expect to see him?
2: Um, I, I think like you, he'll every now and then pop up on these those sort of novelty variety TV shows and, and things like that. And uh, there's, there's you know, he's sort of, I believe, he's voiced over for a couple of anime who is here and there as well. And, uh, you know, that's the the tie-in that we have with Bushiroad is, is that, you know, we're able to use our talents in, in different places as well. But uh, yeah, I remember the, the weirdest place that I've seen our guys was just watching kids TV with my two sons. And there was a, a random sort of kids cooking show and then all of a sudden it wasn't ibushi but it was uh tanahashi and makabe who two of our other talents and, and just seeing them completely randomly pop up on, on our TV screens is bizarre. But uh, yeah, I, I know we've, we've got a lot of our guys um, recently will will appear in, in Kamen Rider as well, which is the, the sort of kids classic uh, superhero TV show. And, and for every now and then, you, you'll see you know one of those New Japan talents all, almost always, you know, they, they're all like dedicated fans of Kamen Rider and, and they'll always pop up as one of the bad guys, you know, <laughs> they never want the, the mean heroes, but they they never, so you. even even the faces don't want to be heroes, <laughs> right? Exactly. Well, I think there's 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 a I certain uh, relish of, of flipping the script and <laughs> getting to be uh, so beloved, and then and then getting to be hated on on TV by sort of seven year olds. You know,
1: what is the trajectory? Because I know that that NJPW is its own meal; it is its own career. But the exchange between American and Japanese wrestling has been such a dynamic source of New talent, new content, new ways of doing things like that back and forth since uh, really the 1970s and forward, uh, but particularly once people started you know trading tapes and and once you ended up with like bullet club becoming a thing in the United States, right? Once that happened, then that sort of exchange was not only out of the bag but was past sort of like the hipster level of of wrestling fan. You know, like if I know about it, it's out of the bag, right? Like it's it's obvious that like this is a this is a relationship that isn't going anywhere, but also that is vital to I think the survival and growth of both kind of wrestling cultures. That's a really long way for me of saying of this. Does Ibushi ever try to go stateside like Nakamura did? That's not me asking. Hopefully, because I like what he does just fine, and I think NGPW is awesome. I'm just wondering if. This is somebody who is so determined to literally expand the definition of where wrestling can happen. Going overseas just seems like a logical extension of that at one point.
2: Well, I think um, he's very committed to, to New Japan. He said he signed a very long term uh, contract uh, just a couple of years ago. But, you know, we're in the, the position now um, arguably almost better than anywhere else on the planet, set up in the future in terms of a, a truly global professional wrestling experience. And we set up uh, New Japan of America, was established in November 2019. And there, there was, uh, again, issues where <laughs> that was right before the pandemic struck, you know, and, and right before just as, as we were set to, to, to tour across U.S. consistently. There was a little thing that that happened that that set a lot of people back but um you know we started producing weekly content out in los angeles and that got to the point where it, it gained more and more of a, of a cult following we have our own dojo system over in los angeles just like we have in tokyo so we're producing um young stars in america that can serve uh, New Japan, not just in the US, but in Japan as well, and uh, really all over the world from there. And then we're coming back to, we're bringing fans back in for that at the Torch at LA Coliseum on August 14th. We're having a big event called Resurgence, and then we're bringing fans to our weekly TV tapings after that on August the 16th. So yes, Kodorobushi can absolutely sort of serve American audiences, wherever he is really. And in New Japan, the the great thing about NJPW World is that for less than $10 a month, people can uh, sort of be invested in in everything that we do. We have uh, live coverage. Everything is either live in English or it has English commentary and post. We have subtitles on every single interview. We have a, a... you know, we were able to cater towards that audience. So yeah, Kodo can absolutely wrestle in New Japan rings in America. And also, you know, there, there's really sort of lots of barriers. I think that the pandemic has changed uh, the way people do business in America. Um, and that's kind of meant that if you're, yes, you're, you're contracted and, and your primary sort of position and occupation is with a, a certain organization but that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you can't pop up elsewhere so you know really i have no idea what's on his schedule but you you can truly never say never you know i think that the last couple of years has has really told us that
0: I actually think one thing that's really interesting to think about this is just how cross-cultural media has gotten overall. And not not just the pandemic, but I think a lot about what Netflix has done to this. Um, you know, my wife watched that show. God, I can't remember the name of it. It's a Spanish show about like a bank robbery, these bank robbers, and it's all dubbed. This is like a thing where, you know, to, to have a mainstream show that's dubbed in a completely different language to go and be watched around the world. I think even five years ago, that would have been an insane thing. That wasn't, in other countries, watching English shows that are dubbed is very common, but in America, it's very uncommon. So I think what's gonna happen, and I think it's really interesting that we talk about it in this context, is there's just so much more ease people have in looking at cross-cultural content than they ever had before. So like for me, as an outside fan of wrestling, what you're saying is like, oh, I can now access this stuff it's, I'm much more likely to go see that than I was even two years ago because of what I'm used to seeing in the world, you know? And I think that might open up a ton of doors for all of this, All like even Spencer, we were talking about before about all these different kinds of sports that are gonna come out of the blue.
2: Like you said, it's, it's access to the content without necessarily drastically localizing that content out of uh, recognition. You know, I, I think like, uh, you know, Gavin, you come from a video game background as well, but you, you know, kind of like that, Period in the early mid two thousands where a lot of Japanese companies thought that they had to make video games and cater to the Western style and produced a lot of content that that didn't connect with with really either audience and there's you know I think the 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 key thing is is having um, all of these people access. Japanese pro wrestling or New Japan pro wrestling, but to to have it still maintain that integrity of what New Japan pro wrestling is. And that's, you know, one of the key things when we, brought our, our dojo up when we established our dojo in, in LA, it's headed by this guy, Katsuyori Shibata, who is a, a very, came through a New Japan system. His dad was a referee for New Japan Pro Wrestling, like all the way back in the 70s. And, you know, he's, he's very dedicated to that very disciplined kind of approach to the point where uh, the people that come through that system receive exactly the same kind or the same quality of training that they get. If they're coming into a, a, a dojo system in in Norgue. and it, it really is the best possible um sort of breeding place for for talent that that you could get really really anywhere in the world
0: so one of the things i watched was a i watched a video online and i was telling spencer earlier there's not a lot of video that you can see at least on youtube to see clips of of coda it's kind of hard to kind of find and piece it together but i saw a clip of 25 of his like signature moves and One of the things that was amazing to me, and I, you know, you often think this about wrestlers, but like specifically with Coda is the just pure athleticism of what he's doing and specifically the leaps and twists and almost like dives that he's doing off of very, very high in very specific places is that something that's a specialty of his or is that more common in Japanese wrestling? And I know you, saw, I remember like when I was a kid, Leaping Lenny Poffo was like a big guy in the WWF at the time, but that was like nothing compared to what we're seeing uh, Koda Ibushi do. Is that, is that a, a signature of his that he does these really over-the-top acrobatic moves?
2: Um, yeah, I think he was certainly influenced by a lot of, of different people and, and, and high flyers and that sort of drove his career um you're really at the start of of his career and, and he's become ever since you, know, you you started typically in japanese pro wrestling we have a pair of, of weight classes so if you're under 100 kilos you're junior heavyweight and above 100 kilos or whatever that is 200 pounds or whatever then you're a heavyweight and that kind of brings with it a change in style maybe bring, makes you more uh, sort of Heavy striking based, more power based, but I think even then the, the heavyweight style has become more high flying uh, lately. But yeah, you know, I, th- I think just like you were drawn into that that YouTube video, I, I think that was that was probably you know a part of it with the Ibushi. You know, and th- the first match that I ever saw of of Japanese pro wrestling was was Jishin Thunder Thunderliger, who's a very famous, you know, sort of iconic figure, against a, a guy called uh, Hayabusa. And this was, and I, I'd never seen Japanese pro wrestling before, and you, know, I put this tape in, and instantly the story was Hayabusa had, had uh, was a young guy, he'd, he'd been training in Mexico, and then this was his his sort of first match, first exposure to a Japanese audience. And straight out of the gates, he he sort of drop kicks Liger through the ropes, and then does this huge dive over the top rope onto onto Liger. And instantly, it struck me of like this is completely different to everything that I've ever seen. That I understand what pro wrestling was. There were there were two guys in masks. They were they were in brightly coloured outfits, and they were doing these these incredible things. And it it instantly drew me in. You know, and I think that's. Um, Yo, that's that's partly the, the thing with Ibushi as well. It's it's an offensive maneuver, but it, it also looks just absolutely stunning. And, and it's instantly that the moment you see it, then you're invested in in who this guy is
1: also the invincible neck. Like that's the joke. The joke with Ibushi is that he has extra vertebrae and has no regard for the health of his neck. If you were on Twitter and you see somebody yelling at like nine in the morning about a Japanese wrestler whose neck is apparently made of titanium. That would be Kota Ibushi because the moves are dramatic and sometimes they over-rotate with such ferocity that they end up on the back of his head in a way that you would think would kill another man. That's one of the things I love about him and one of the things I know Chris probably can't speak to as an NJPW-associated person, but, oh, God, this man takes risks. If it just And even if it's not that risky a move, he makes it look risky will make it look extremely operatic and over the top. And uh, it's one of the things that is compelling about him um, in both the positive and negative ways. Like, I don't think you ever watch a wrestler and feel entirely great sometimes at the lengths in which they are going to entertain you, but you take it because the product itself is so satisfying.
2: Yeah, I mean, there the are moments with with Kotor and there was a very sort of famous match he had in Osaka with with Tetsuya Naito a couple of years ago where he was, if you, if you imagine the, the ring there's there's no real sort of pleasant place it's it's not a fun place to jump onto it's not exactly a trampoline but the typically to sort of be the the safest that you can be in that environment you want to be sort of getting hit and falling over in the middle of that ring right because just the physics of it it's the softest part of that area whereas on the the apron side around the edge that that's pretty much just steel bars, like covered under a very, very thin layer of, of canvas. And, um, Tetyan sort of grabs Ibushi from behind and, and does a German suplex, which is where he throws him over his head. So you land on the, the top of your shoulders and, and your neck. And he did that right on that ring frame. And I was sitting literally ringside i was six feet that was six feet in front of me when you know all we say is oh god he hit his head and and you didn't quite know how to deal with that and process that and then he he got in in the ring and and was able to to not only continue but but have this this incredible match there's something remarkable about the the adrenaline and the physical composition and just the the conditioning that he has as well which is uh you know i think the things that that people sort of instantly get drawn to ibushi is those those sort of high-flying incredible physical feats um but also the fact that you know it, it's he looks like a comic book superhero, you know, he's he's just the the, the most the absolute definition of a, of a perfect physical specimen that, that you that you can be.
0: And he's got remarkable hair. I love his hair. <laughs> gorgeous hair. He has anime hair.
2: Yeah, he really yeah, does. Yeah anime hair, which is, uh, you are incredible for the fact that, you know, he's, uh, I, I think he's a year or two older than me, which makes me in, insanely jealous. Yes.
0: <laughs> How long, like, what is it? What does a career look like in that world? Like, is he going to do this for Ten more years. I mean, I can't imagine. I, so I'm 47. If he, I think he's in his late 30s, right? Am I? Am I right? That was somewhere around there. Yeah, I can't imagine that the body can take that for too long. Has he said how long he's going to do it, or is he just kind of playing it out and seeing how it goes?
2: Kodobushi has has very publicly stated that he plans to live until he's 150 years old, <laughs> and that he'll wrestle, <laughs> and that he'll wrestle. You know, he may might have like a five year retirement at the end of his career, so he'll be wrestling for for at least another the, like century and a bit apparently so um you know really i think dude that's that's something that a lot of people would laugh off but i don't i wouldn't actually put it past him you know so who knows? that's amazing
0: uh, okay spencer you got anything else or uh, we'll wrap it up pretty quickly oh no chris this is just awesome
1: if you see him say hi and that i love him we all do because I, <laughs> I like he's like yeah i'll just fanboy out dude the dude is the dude is magnetic he's, he's a guy who like i do not even speak his language, and I pay money to watch him wrestle strangers on the other side of the world. That's how cool he is. And what I didn't even like, I didn't even get to like half the things I wanted to ask you about. And that's how cool he is. That's not like, that's not even a fault of the format. He's Kodobushi <laughs> rules. That's it. That's my, that's my eloquence here. Kodobushi rules. Full stop.
0: I I will say I'm, I'm so fascinated by him now too, that I'm going to spend a significant amount of my free time digging into this world, which is also like, that just shows you what a great, Salesperson, he is for himself. Like watching him, I, I beg anybody listening to this go and just watch clips of him, and it's pretty incredible.
2: Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and uh, if you do, just just want to sort of jump into that world, um, you know, I would. I'm probably partially contractually obliged, but uh, honestly, because I believe in the product, then uh, you should uh, go check out njpwworld.com, which is our sort of uh, streaming service. We have uh, live events, several live events every month a lot of them with live english commentary but uh, you know even if we don't necessarily have that live it's always in post and we typically have maybe one or two free events every month where you don't even need to to sign up. Uh, usually around the start of each month, so that's something where you don't need to sign up. You can just sort of check out what this Japanese pro wrestling thing is, and then uh, hop in over. Uh, you know, after that, we've got. Um, I think we've got an app on Amazon Fire Stick as well, so that's that's a great place to go. Or um, you know, we have all of these uh, English channels now, which is something that. Uh, we haven't been able to to sort of bring fans uh, in the past, but now everything, there is no language barrier. Really, there's no language barrier with with Japanese professional wrestling because of that sort of very pure sporting kind of approach to that. Or, you know, we're showing people rather than telling them. So it's not like people are hopping on a microphone and, and talking for 20 minutes and then maybe there's a five minute match. Yo, know, it, it's it's all sort of uh, in-ring based. But there are these sort of backstage interviews which add a lot of color and they're always sort of subtitled and, and available for the next day. And, and we have uh, an English YouTube page. Uh, also, you can go to ngpw1972.com, which has uh, sort of long form interviews and all of these reports that's that's all in English and and all there. So it's it's very, very easily accessible.
0: That is awesome. Uh, well, hey, Chris, oh, before we go, I often do a thing, and I maybe didn't warn you about this, so I apologize. If you don't have an answer, that's fine. Uh, before we go, I ask our experts to let me know something that they're obsessed with that's kind of outside of their current world uh, job slash interests. Like, is there something that's getting in the back of your mind that you can't stop thinking about right now outside of wrestling?
2: Um, I'm in one of the positions where I was obsessed with professional wrestling, then it became my job. And then you know like that thing where they say you're um, you know you never have to work a day in your life because you, you do what you like for a living and then you never stop working because you do what you like for a living. So there there, there is that but recently I've been playing with uh, my son this this thing called a uh, game game builder garage on this on the Switch which is a kind of very sort of accessible holds your hand kind of approach to to game programming. So I've been uh, sort of tinkering with that, and I sort of watch my son play, who's uh, he's in second grade. So his um, it's very sort of very well sort of attuned to him in in terms of how it's written, how it sort of guides you through things. But I'm there sort of <laughs> taking mental notes as I'm watching him do it, and then you know I'll go and after he's gone to bed. I'll sort of tinker with something and make something. Then I'm like, try this out. So yeah, you know, that's that's uh, that's that's been. Taking up a, a lot of my time over the last couple of weeks.
0: That's awesome. I've actually heard great things about that. I saw somebody talking about it um, just the other day. It's supposed to be. It's called Game Builder Garage, and it's a. It's for the Nintendo Switch, right?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Is it out here or is it just out in Japan?
2: I think it's it's out everywhere. I, I believe. Yeah. It it and it's become one of these these things where I never I have stayed very very far away from Reddit for for so many years unless you know I absolutely have to use it, but. You know, just to sort of you know, check somebody's asked this the same. Somebody must have the same question that I've had. So, you know, that's one of those things where I've, I've actually, you know, much to my chagrin, sort of put the Reddit app on on my phone. And you know, that's, that's what i sort of well, Listen, Listen, Chris,
1: like I get that. But you know where I'm going to be once Breath of the Wild 2 comes out? I'm going to be on Reddit. Because that's, <laughs> that's, I know it's waiting for me. Like I avoid it. I try to stay away from it but Breath of the Wild 2 or anything else where I'm not going to have the answers, someone on Reddit did it
0: already. Right, there you go. The yeah. walkthrough is the greatest gift to anybody over 25, I feel like.
2: I, it's, yeah, isn't it? You know, I, I think, yeah, that that's that's the thing. I just, I can't, everything has to be in 30-minute in chunks as, as soon as, especially after you have kids. So, I, I, yeah, you
0: know. exactly. Well, all right, thank you so much to both of you, uh, Spencer and Chris. Thanks for coming in. Um, and we really appreciate you guys both being here. Thank you. Okay. That's everything for today's episode of way too interested. Thank you to my guests, Spencer Hall, Chris Charlton. Thank you to the Gregory brothers for the theme song for the show. Thank you to Eric Johnson for helping produce the show. And most of all, thank you to you at home for listening. I have a fun time doing this show. I'm really enjoying it. I hope you uh, subscribe, you listen, and I hope you share it. If you like it again, always about trying to open ourselves up to new things. I hope to see you next time. Bye-bye.